When it comes to working at GEICO, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she is so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At GEICO, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, GEICO has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside? She still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Kansas City? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Kansas City. Amazon Prime members get free two-hour grocery delivery. That means no masks, no lines, no pants, no makeup, no traffic jam, no where do I park, no where did I park, no random guy blocking the aisle, no did you drop your shoe in the store again, no... Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Free two-hour grocery delivery. Now with Prime. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Kaiju Curry House, the weekly show that gives you a healthy dose of kaiju goodness every single Monday. My name is Paul Williams and I'm joined by Alex. Hello there. Joe. Howdy. And returning special guest, we have John Walsh, a filmmaker, author and trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Hello, John. Evening, gents. Good to be back. Good oh, to thanks for coming back. back. Yeah. Yeah, like it's nice to have a friend of the show. I think that's it. Once you've been on twice, that's it. You're officially a friend. Oh, it's nice to have friends anywhere, isn't it? Whether it's um, <laughs> online, on podcasts, anywhere, in the streets. I'm happy to take anything I can get. <laughs> Especially at, at times like this. We, we, we're reaching out, aren't we? It's a great time. So, um, gentlemen, we're here. We're episode 46 and we're celebrating Ray Harryhausen. But mm. before we do that, we have to ask the favourite question of what have kaiju been up to so i'm going to start off and ask joe what have kaiju been up to this is because i made you introduce the episode isn't it, it is yes yeah there we go um so since we last came together and spoke uh i really haven't had a ton of time to devote to my monster fandom hobby however i was able to show someone king kong for the first time last night oh cool so yeah, so we, we, I found out that one of my friends had not seen King Kong full stop, and I thought that that was a bit of a tragedy. So rather than watch an episode of Friday Night Dinner, I pushed this person into watching the entire three-plus-hour Peter Jackson special edition of King Kong. Wow. Not starting off lightly. <laughs> well... There, because I have all the versions of King Kong, I just wanted to. You know, I was thinking about which version would be a good like first for them to see. Yeah. So there's the Dino De Laurentiis version, which, eh, really, John? Okay. I mean, like Rick Baker's made that costume and he's in the costume. Jeff Bridges is great. It has some fun stuff in it, but where my heart lies, it was with the original. But the original it's a product of its era and some people, it can rub people the wrong way, but it also can seem 
a little bit older, as much as I love stop motion animation, it isn't necessarily everybody's cup of tea. So what I ended up doing was going with the Peter Jackson version, which really is a love note to the original. And you are definitely not losing anything from the original. So we went with that and she got to the end, unlike my mother. I'm not sure, John, if you've heard one of our previous podcasts, but my mother, who's notorious for falling asleep in the first 15 minutes of any film, she went all the way through Peter Jackson's King Kong, and then he starts climbing the Empire State Building, and then she turns to me and he goes, if he dies, I'm going to stop watching this right now. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there like, oh, dear. <laughs> what do I say? So naturally, my mother got up and started like cooking and baking, but uh, she she would pop back in. But you know, it got quite distressing for her because she she got to really genuinely love that Kong, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to show this friend that because Andy Circus did an amazing job bringing that Kong to life. But it's, I think it's a great film, and Peter Jackson did an amazing job with it. He was also an amazing character in that film. Um, yeah, what a death an amazing death. I mean, such a gnarly moment when you're in the insect pit. That's my favorite part of the film. I think it's fun. Oh yeah. When, when spoilers folks, when Lumpy dies, that was traumatic for me. Um, and I also love, I mean, Peter Jackson's gone on record saying that I, I couldn't just have the one Tyrannosaurus. I had, I felt like I had to outdo it. So he put in three, which it's a great bit of fun to watch that scene. I think that there, there's a lot of great things going on there. The score, the cinematography, the uh, staging of that battle, the special effects, the integration of it all. I think that Weta does an amazing job with their uh, miniature sets and um, putting everything together that way, integrating all of it. It has, its very, it has a great feel. And I think that uh, they really got, they hammered that in with Lord of the Rings, but I think King Kong is like a fantastic work. Hmm. But yeah, like that's, that's what I did last night. Um, so John, I'll ask you, what have Kaiju been up to? Well, I'll just, I'll tell you in a sec, but on the back of your King Kong um, anecdote there, you could have solved the problem with Kong not dying by going with the Dino 76 version of Kong and then following straight on with King Kong Lives from 1986. Yeah, but you have to make them watch King Kong Lives. That's so, the problem You know, well, you overcome that problem. And interestingly, the Peter Jackson film didn't go quite as smoothly as people might think. Oh, um, the film had a preview and uh, didn't do very well. And the score by Howard Shaw, who did the score for the um, Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, was, was axed from the film. And so James Newton Howard came in at the very last minute and did that music for the film something much more lyrical but the rather perverse thing is howard shaw is still in the film as the conductor of the orchestra when kong is um announced oh, wow. to and, and and show so he's there well, that's cool Basically, well not cool because howard no. shaw's there doing somebody else's music it's like, oh you know his tongue's been cut out effectively and somebody else yeah. is speaking it's a kick in the balls oh yeah balls through the top of your head time for howard yeah, shaw because Obviously, that would have been filmed when it was presumed that he was still doing the score, but then they haven't removed him in terms of his acting. So he's no longer doing the music and he's still in the film. But so oh, the music. No, that, that's very awful. awkward. I thought, awkward. Because he, I thought he could no longer do the music and so they put him in as a 
Like, no, no, music that's not, a shame. No. He couldn't okay. even pull a David Prowse. You guys yeah. know what David Prowse did, right? Of course, from Star Darth Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So David Prowse was the actor inside the Darth Vader costume. And George Lucas decided that, I mean, he decided appropriately, and I think we'll all agree that James Earl Jones is an amazing Darth Vader voice. But David Prowse, uh, he has kind of a Welsh Bristonian accent. And they wanted something different. But once David Prowse found out that he, his dialogue was not going to be in the film, he started speaking gibberish at the actors. Not <laughs> Welsh, just gibberish. <laughs> that was his way of kind of getting back. Because then they had to just act like, uh, but yeah, that, wow, I didn't know that. You see, I have all the production diaries. I, I got that case with the lithographs and everything when it came out. But mm. I, I can't say that like the 20 hours of extra material, I think they were putting it on the uh, Kong is King.net when the movie was uh, in production. I haven't watched all of that yet. I didn't know that, but thank yeah, you. Yeah, but a sharing. lot of that stuff though, is, it's EPK, so it's electronic press kit. So it always points in the positive direction. So if you have, <laughs> unless you've got something positive to say, it's not going in. And I've just written a new book about the uh, making of Flash Gordon from 1980. And a lot of bad things happened on that production and it's all in the book for the first time so sometimes you get a bit of distance from these things you can you can do a warts and all expose officially um with the permission of the license holder king features thank you sir um you know and uh and i think it's more interesting for people to hear because anytime you pop on a um a making of these days everyone is saying how glad they are to be offered the part and it was a script what got them there and this is the best thing they've ever done and it's quite trite because often that's not the case and uh, actors are cast in roles so that other actors don't get cast in roles. Well, you can so, tell it was a hard movie. Yeah. I mean, Peter mm. Jackson started out like a lovable lump at the beginning of that production. And by the end, he had lost so much weight. Like you could tell he was stressed from making it. But then it, it was his dream movie to make, wasn't it? Like he, he's said many a time that King Kong was what got him into cinema. It was, it was. So we move on from Peter Jackson. I, I, in lockdown, then I've been working, uh, been finishing my second book and oh, yeah. uh, doing the captions and the, the, the photo editing that needed doing on that. And I've been talking to publisher about third book. It's like, bloody wow. hell, I haven't even had a lockdown yet. I want to put my feet up and binge watch old telly and, and I've got Netflix and all the others, but I've not really had a chance to go through any of them. So while everyone else is having a pretty good time, I've been um, squirreling away and uh, working on this and on, stuff for the foundation because Harryhausen juggernaut never never sleeps despite the uh, postponement of the uh, exhibition. Do we get to know anything about these new books? Well, Flash Gordon, the official story of the film mm -hmm. is already available to pre-order now on Amazon and uh, it's a 200 page book. For the first time, the official story of the film is being told. Um, for a long time, uh, King Features, the license holder, didn't want to create a book about the making of the film. And we've got everyone together. So all of the surviving cast even some of the cast who are no longer with us, we have their final interviews that have been donated by family and friends. And in the case of the great Dino De Laurentiis, who I'm a big fan of, uh, his wife, Martha, um, sat down with me and we spoke extensively about the issues around Sam Jones, the film, the sequels, what could have happened, what should have happened, and how the film's perceived now. Like 40 years later, it's an overnight success. And, you know, that wasn't quite the story at the time, of course. Um, and yet... The film is getting this beautiful 4K restoration by Studio Canal. And, you know, it's a very expensive procedure to do a 4K 
restoration or a library title. So they're not doing that just to keep a few nerds and fanboys and fangirls happy. There is a big market for that film. And uh, it's uh, out on the 10th or 11th of August as a UHD 4K. Very nice. And when does your book come out, please? My book comes out nearer to the anniversary. So my book's out the 27th of October. The actual anniversary is the 8th of December. So I'm doing a series of sort of talks and and everything. In fact, I've started a podcast series um, called Flash Gordon, the official story of the film podcast. And I've done one episode. I've just been cutting episode two today, which where we speak to the restoration people down at Studio Canal. Episode three is with Matt Ferguson, the guy who did the new poster um, for the release. So I'm trying to include lots of things that are not in the book. Okay, so for folks that might not be familiar with Flash Gordon, because I know a few. Who? Who who would not be familiar with Flash Gordon? <laughs> I was say that. Who'd not? Even if they I don't, don't want like to name it, names, but I do, I do know a few what? people. So oh, why do you know them? Why? They're not people. <laughs> Alex, you're being, oh, wow. you're being malicious and facetious now. <laughs> but, um, all right. John, Flash Gordon. It is a science fiction, like, space opera, but... Yeah. Can you like condense what it is about so that people will go see the movie and then they will read your book because they want okay. to see how it was done? So it's based on the 1936 newspaper comic strip called Flash Gordon. And he's a hero who's um, also a, a sports star, an American sports star, who's hurtled into space because the Earth is being attacked. In space, he meets this Darth Vader-like figure, Ming the Merciless. And there's an adventure that happens with Flash. It's very like Star Wars. The... Um, comic strip was serialized in cinemas in the 1930s and then for years people have been trying to do something else with it there was an animated television show in america in the uh, 60s and 70s and then the early 1980s a feature film version was made and queen provided the music soundtrack so people who know that song flash then that's where that music comes from. So sometimes people know the film or they know the music and they don't always know they, they marry together. It's rare that I come across people who don't know it. People say they don't like it. People tell me that all the time. Oh, why are you doing Flash Gordon? Oh, why don't you do something else? It's you know, camp. It has, it, well, it's camp <laughs> as heck. It's glorious. Part of the charm, yeah. A it's lot of people don't know what camp means though. And Dino, when he was making mm. the film, Mike tried to explain, Mike Hodges, the film's director, tried to explain its kind of camp humour. And, and Dino, um, it kind of got lost in translation. And I don't think within Italian humour that camp is something that's, that's yeah, fair identifiable. Point. It's mm. incredibly quotable. I would say that it's, it's up there with aliens in terms of a film that people just take snippets of and quote it i I find it in many ways a fairly stupid film but it's phenomenally enjoyable and the characters are just the characters are garish and brilliant and um being the merciless is fantastic just his costume alone oh yeah what a wonderful film wow you have to ask someone else now john yeah you have to ask the pun question to someone else. So what have Kaiju been up to, Alex? Thank you very much for asking. Um, I very kindly received a gift from co-host Joe. I received a copy of Kong of Skull Island, written by Joe DeVito. And it's a very exciting week for us because Joe DeVito will be coming on uh, the show this Sunday. So actually the episode after this one is an interview of Joe DeVito, all about Kong of Skull Island. So I've just received that and I've been delving into it. 
Gone Kong King of Skull Island. Kong King of Skull Island. Ah, you, sorry. I've been schooled. You look up, you'll get the movie if you look it up the other way. That's the problem. But yeah. Right, okay. There you go. So Kong King of Skull Island. And yeah, this is not a book about Kong Skull Island. It's a totally separate entity. It's a glorious book, but I'm not going to delve into it too much because we're going to be talking about that soon. I also won a bid on eBay, £7 for a copy of Big Trouble in Little China. So that, that's what I'm doing this week. I'm going to be watching that. All right, I'm, I'm getting some disapproving looks. A slightly sheepish look there from Paul. He loves uh, Big Trouble in Little China, don't you, Paul? Yes, of course. I love Kurt Russell. There we go. Maybe not that, maybe not that film, but I love Kurt Russell. John likes it, don't you, John? Film. I love Big Trouble in Little China. It's just great such movie. a great film. Sky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Pork Chop Express. I mean, ugh. yes, that's a film that needs to be seen with an audience. It's a great movie. You know, like a lot of John Carpenter's films, it didn't land particularly well time of box office because marketing pushed it through like indiana jones and of course it's not that um but it happens a lot galaxy quest same thing happened with that picture when it came out you know studio pushed it through for a younger audience when it wasn't really uh, the right audience for it but um no i i love big trouble i rarely meet people who don't like big trouble in little china i'm a little bit suspicious now um (laughs) working out ways to ditch paul from the show for a while but (laughs) (laughs) so far and on that jolly note, Paul, what have Kaiju been up to? Oh, let, let me show you. Thanks oh, for the video. What, what's going on? Well, courtesy of Joe, I have, I've received some co- Kong of Skull Island. Not King, Kong of Skull Island. So this is... Mm-hmm. Ooh. I've, read the t- I've read volumes one and two so far. I've got mm-hmm. volume three to read. And it's fantastic. Loving it. Ah. I, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure if I would because Kong hasn't been as meaningful to me as it has been to Joe. And I was thinking, oh, no, what if I don't like it? But fortunately, I I, I, the, I love this Kong. There was pressure, wasn't there, to like these books? Were you there was the a pressure, bit, Paul? <laughs> I was feeling the pressure. I was very relieved when I, started, when I was like, oh, this is good. It was <laughs> comparable to when your friend plays you a YouTube video of comedy and every couple of seconds they go, do you like it? Do you like it? Are you laughing yet? And you're like, it, it's, well, just, just let me watch it. Just back off for a moment. And uh, a couple of days ago, Joe said, so have you read it yet? Whoa, it just arrived two hours ago in the post. <laughs> Give me a break, please. Dear. I was excited. Yeah. Oh, it, so... <laughs> and these are not easy to books to get hold of. So I'm very, very glad to receive it. Thank you very much. Okay. What, um, else, and what to... else has been going on? Well, um, I don't know if you're aware of Arbitrary Day on Reddit, where they basically celebrate halfway through the year like a, a second Christmas, if you will. And you can go on there and you can get matched up with a random person in the UK or another country and exchange gifts with someone with, uh, as a secret Santa, effectively. And just today, my secret Santa gift came through, which is a um, Godzilla oh, wow. King of the Monsters hoodie. Nice. So that just, <laughs> that awesome. just arrived. Yes, that just arrived in the post today. So is that a coincidence or did they know anything about you? Uh, well, my username is like, like Godzilla DVD or something, but you do say you do list your favourite films, games, TV shows, and they. Oh, okay. So I'm guessing Godzilla was the easiest thing for you to find, really. I mean, I did put Tremors down, but you know that that's never going to come through, is it? And there we go. There was the Tremors it's, reference for the episode for you, Paul. <laughs> it's just too much of a cult following that film. Not not big enough. Um, and the last, I'm going to throw it out there as Kaiju. You might disagree. Have either of you heard of? Um, Metro 2033. No, sir. No. Okay. Um, it's a 
book. It's a Russian book, a Russian trilogy of books by um, Dmitry Glukovsky, I want to say is his name, about um, nuclear war and people hiding, taking shelter in the metro system, so like the underground system, and trying to basically just, just live down there, wait out the upside world to be safe again. And the creatures, wherever's up on top of the surface, are starting to mutate. So there's now like flying creatures, packs of like mutated wolves and things. And one day, one of the chaps goes up top, comes back down and doesn't seal the entrance. And creatures start to creep their way into the metro system. Uh, and they're referred only as the dark ones. So like this mysterious creature, hordes of them are slowly coming in to where the, pe- the last surviving people are. I haven't actually read the book, but mm. I've played it. But there's a video game based on it. So I've been playing I the game. Yes. Yes. So, and the game's very, very good. It's um, it's first person shooter, but you're in a gas mask when you're out and about. So your your visibility is reduced. It can crack if you get damaged. You've got to wipe the visor when it's raining. So it's very, very immersive. And it seems like a really good story. And I was just wondering if anyone had read the books. I was expecting Joe to have actually, because you're like the... You're trying to gauge that. You're going to say the one of us who reads were... <laughs> yeah, if I was, yeah, I didn't want to cause offense. <laughs> As a teacher, I know you read a lot. Well, uh, not more than me. Steady answer, yeah. Uh, Joe, you're the one who's literate of the three of us. Uh, and actually, just you speaking about Tremors earlier, Tremors 7 is still being released this October, whilst other films being pushed back That's amazing! I know. I know. The fact oh. that Halloween sequel, I think Halloween Kills, it's called, that's been knocked back a year. Is Tremors 7? Yeah. No, it is not. You can't keep a good grab boy down. Exactly that's just what that. I say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because it's straight to DVD, isn't it? There's no... No cinema, so you don't need to worry about that. Well, we have waffled on, but it is time for our first break. And then when we get back, let's dive into the 100th birthday of Ray Harryhausen, folks. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favourite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Kaiju Curry House for the second part of this episode. My name is Alex. I am joined by Paul, Joe, and special guest, John Walsh of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. We are now going to be talking about the significance of of last month, which I believe was the 100th birthday of Ray Harryhausen. Now, the exhibit, which was going to be held in Edinburgh, was sadly postponed due to COVID-19, like everything else. However, John, can you take us through what the current situation is on that for our listeners? Right, well, the exhibition, which has just been postponed, will be opening, I think it's on the 24th of October this year. 
and we're going to be running for a year. So previously it was going to be six months. Now it will be for a full year. So hopefully folks that were going to join us from over, over the pond in the United States will be coming across, if not this year, then certainly next. And the exhibition is going to be as big as we'd planned. We've um, got some exciting things to show. We've got some screenings, hopefully to do in 4K of some of Ray's great films. And there's going to be other events around the exhibition. Had it opened in, in May, which was the plan, the centenary date of 29th of June, which was Ray's birthday, we would have been in Scotland and we would have had a screening, a goggle box type screening. I hope all you lads are familiar with goggle box on Channel 4. Yes, yes sir. Well, we would have had a screening like that, but without paying them any money. And it would have been John Landis on a couch, possibly with Vanessa Harryhausen and myself on stage. And we would have gone through the top 10 Harryhausen creatures as voted for by thousands of fans around the world. And the controversial top 10 would have been shown in video form. And you could see the creatures and, uh, you know, debate amongst yourself who, who should be at number one and so on. Um, we've released that online now. You can see it via the Ray Harryhausen Foundation Facebook page. And we've done a special podcast as well where I discussed with Ray's daughter, Vanessa, the top 10. And Ray himself interjects with his views on each of the creatures that made it to that top 10. Later in the year, we're going to release the, uh, the number um, 20 to 11. So people get to see what nearly made it into the top 10. And we're going to do a few other cheeky polls, such as the uh, top 10 unmade Harryhausen films or the lost movies. So people can decide which ones they think should be made, although one's already in development. So it's a bit mute. (laughs) Which is an appropriate moment to plug your book. John, recently, was it this year that you released it? It was last year, wasn't it? End of last year, just in time for Christmas. End of last year. So the name of the book is Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, which was released the end of last year. And I know that you had a special signing in Forbidden Planet, didn't you? Yes, that's right. It was, um, look how professional I am. Look at that. It's just like being on the news from 1975. It's it's glorious. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we had a special screening and uh, signing at Forbidden Planets in London. And that followed a 4K premiere screening of the seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958. So Columbia Pictures, who looked after now by Sony, um, allowed me access to the 4K DCP. And that was shown. It had a world premiere. And it was actually better than it was when it was shown in 1958 to audiences. It had stereo sound and it was clean and sharp. And it was a full house there at Regent Street. And we had a screening, funnily enough, of King Kong there in January. And we had a print, 35 mil print of the 1933 King Kong. So if it's the right screening and the right environment and there's a Q&A or something that goes with it, you can fill old cinemas with old films. And it don't have to all be old people. Some young people like yourselves were there. And me, I'm kind of young in candlelight from a distance. Pass some ghouls. Paul has never been accused of being young, have you, Paul? No, never. No, he was born 40. <laughs> You'll really enjoy this, John. So uh, your book, along with the art of Ray Harryhausen, is in my living room. There are books that I keep on the coffee table. And my daughter, whilst COVID's been going on during lockdown, she's been looking for topics. And every day I've let her like choose topics. So she really enjoyed the art from your book and, you know, like the pictures, you know, like the the creatures and all that lovely stuff. And then later we watched uh, the Percy Jackson movies over a weekend. So she was really into Greek myths. So I kind of piggybacked on top of that and I kind of like herded her, I corralled her into my interests. So Long short of it, we ended up watching Clash of the Titans, which I know you are very partial to, and she 
absolutely adored that movie. So when you say young people do enjoy these films, my daughter is six years old. She thought that the Pegasus and Bubo the Owl were the be all end all and she would hear nothing else. They just had to be the most amazing things. So yeah, I mean, it is true. Like young people do enjoy these movies. Like you just have to have that willingness to have fun when you watch it rather than than critique something. So yeah, it was great. But was, was your daughter too young at six though? Because some terrifying scenes in Clash of the Titans. Was she okay with Medusa and Calabos and the scorpions and what have you? She she actually really liked Medusa. So uh, we watched Percy Dicey Jackson. Dicey parenting there, mate. Dicey. <laughs> so we watched Percy Jackson um, over the weekend before. So, you know, like she knew Medusa, she knew of Medusa. And she really liked the fact that Medusa was scary. She really, really liked the snake tail, the fact that Medusa didn't have legs and she used a bow and arrow. She goes, oh, daddy, that's really cool. The other Medusa, all she had was sunglasses. So, you know, like that was her hot take on it. Um, The bits with Calabas, um, it's really funny. So when my daughter, when she's established who the baddie of a film is, she says they're quite naughty. So the other day um, we watched Jurassic Park, um, you know, Jurassic June and all of that. So I thought it was high time, you know, like I was about her age when I saw Jurassic Park. So I'm going to sit here and if it gets too scary, what have you. She loved Jurassic Park, but the kitchen scene came on and she goes, oh, daddy, I don't like those ones. They're naughty. So of course that's her hot take on the velociraptors, but you know, it's just these fun little things that you get to, you know, share with your children. But she really, really enjoyed Clash of the Titans. She just could not have been more happy with that. But she she kept asking me, like, Daddy, like, where can we get a boobo? Do they have do they have boobo lovies or something like that? So, you know, now that I'm talking to a foundation member, this is an avenue of revenue for you. You need to get boobo owls on the shelf for my daughter. It nearly was. When the toys came out in 1981 to accompany the film Mattel, the toy company, had mm-hmm. a uh, had a kind of a mechanical clockwork boobo. Uh, more or less um, one-to-one ratio, that sort of size, um, mm-hmm. that was planned as a second wave of figures. And when the first wave of figures didn't do that well, um, they, they cancelled it. So we have artwork and some photographs, reference photos from the Mattel archive of the Bubo that was planned. But there have been um, sort of prestige versions of Bubo made by people like Gentle Giants in recent years on the license. So he's out there, but he's quite expensive. But there are quite yeah. a few scenes in... Uh, Harry House and the Lost Movies from Ray's movies that were cut. So there were scenes from Clash that were cut um, that never made it. Calabos was going to be the original pre-title sequence for the film. So there are lots of interesting avenues that um, for people who know Ray's films quite well, they'd be fascinated to see what could have been. And it's, um, it's always tantalising, isn't it, to see what could have been. Have you, as a foundation member, ever wanted to go into Argos as Laurence Olivier in a toga and shout, destroy Argos? Discuss. No, but I can tell you what something similar. I've been in pubs where I've said to people who have got a little bit drunk that actually Argos actually comes from the story of Clash of the Titans because when the town was destroyed, everyone's belongings were destroyed and all the merchant stuff was destroyed. So they started writing things down on, on lists and they ended up creating a catalogue. And that's the Argos catalogue you find today. <gasps> really? Is it, John? Really? I'm like, no. What are you doing? Sat here drinking. <laughs> so I have done that. I can't do it now because I've exposed it. 
You know, you, you do say it with a bit of conviction. I mean, like, I, I could totally see folks doing that. I, I absolutely could see that being believed. That is brilliant. I'm, I'm going to steal that from you and I'm going to try it. <laughs> also, <And> thank you. <laughs> thank you for legitimizing my utterly stupid ramble there off topic. I did appreciate that. No, you, we were quite symbiotic there. I think you were quite right. Quite <laughs> um, in terms of the top 10, does it match up with your own top 10? Are you able to share any kind of creatures that have formed favourites of your own? Yeah, my top three in this order would have been the homunculus from the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. He's a tiny little thing, but he's the, 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 he, the creature comes to life after he's killed by Sinbad. And uh, Prince Kura brings him back to life by, by cussing his, um, his hand and, and dripping some blood onto, um, onto his little body. And he's on a little slab of marble. And he kind of cries back into life. It's a very slow sequence, very creepy. And actually, it represents as a metaphor for Harryhausen himself, because Ray brings these creatures to life on the tabletop. And as the homunculus comes to life and realises that's his father, effectively, the, the, the look between them both, it always gives me tingles. Um, so that's my, my third. My, my second is Carly from Golden Voyage of Sinbad, where, with the arms and, and the dancing mm. and so on. And my number one, um, I share with Ray Bradbury, who also chose this as his number one. Sadly, Ray Bradbury's not with us anymore. But he was a good friend of Ray Harryhausen. And his centenary is this year as well. Who'd have thunk it? Two famous Rays um, working in similar genres. Um, but his and mine is the Medusa from Clash of the Titans. So she does make it right up there in, in the charts. I don't want to spoil too much. I'm happy to tell you what the top three <laughs> is here, right here and now. Oh, go on. So at number three... It's Medusa from Clash of the Titans. At number two, it's Talos from okay, Jason okay. and the Argonauts. Yeah. And then at number one, it's the Children of the Hydra's Teeth, hey. also known as the Skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts. Other one, Bubo makes it into the top ten. John Landis doesn't like Bubo the Owl, so um, <laughs> I'd love to have got him on stage commenting about that. <laughs> why not? Why, why didn't he like? Why he, he I think like he Bubo? thought it was too whimsical and. It's not true, even though it's been repeated many times over. Some reviewers said it was, um, uh, what was it, Boo Boo D2, because he was like R2D2. Oh. The reality was that Boo Boo the Owl as a mechanical creature was conceived in the late 1960s as a follow-up to Jason and the Argonauts. So this is well before George Lucas came up with um, R2D2 and Star Wars. Mm. And you can quite clearly see why people make that um, connection. But uh, I think people find it, him quite whimsical and, and childlike. And yet, you know, a lot of people find him endearing. I love Bubo the Owl. If I was going to have a tattoo of any of the Harryhausen creatures, it would be Bubo the Owl first. Are the gods an owl? Golden owl. That See, I not. think um, Bubo's role in the film is ideal because there's a couple of moments when he sort of makes those chirping noises quite soulfully. <laughs> when there's some pretty serious moments in the film and that point when uh, Calabos arrives and uses his whip and just knocks him into the water and then obviously things unfold and a major character death happens... And you think, oh, wow, it's, it's got pretty serious. But yeah. I, I like Bubo in the film. I, I don't find him misplaced. Oh. Well, we, um, we did a podcast and we tracked down the guy who gave Bubo the owl his actual voice, um, Adrian. He was a flute player. 
and uh, we did that on a recent podcast and he actually got the same flute out and and it's like wow it was like having Bubo replying and so he said that he was brought in quite last minute to do that because they were a little bit stuck with how to do the voice and it's it's just so so charming and you know, he's not the Jar Jar Binks. Somebody said to me once, it was lucky it was on a podcast, I couldn't punch them through the screen, mm. said he was the Jar Jar Binks of the Harry Housen world. It's like, no, he's not. No, you know? no, um, I, don't, I don't agree with that comparison. No. Yeah. That poor guy that played Jar Jar. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, it's one of the things. I mean, when I was looking at the list, because I was, I was following this quite intently during all the reveals, I knew that the children of the Hydra's teeth was going to get number one because that is an amazing sequence. And there are things that you can watch during that sequence that Ray did that are absolutely fantastic. Like at one point you see a skeleton hopping over someone's body rather than walking around it or anything. That's incredibly hard to animate with stop motion animation, but that was Ray's talent shining through. That was, that was his bit. But yeah, I mean, I think on the whole, the top 10 were pretty good. There, there was a bit of a lack of dinosaurs. I will chime in and say <laughs> that I love, love my dinosaurs there, but I, I was quite pleasantly surprised, but you know, which were your girl. three? My three? Mm. Um, Medusa's, I can't really pick a top three, but Medusa's definitely going to be, you know, like, or the top one, but Medusa's definitely in there. Just the little snakes that are her hair, the fact that you have that tail going at the same time, she's drawing a, you know, a bow and arrow, oh. she's reaching back into her quiver. It's an incredibly intricate puppet, and then the lighting of that sequence is also fantastic because it's indoors, it's relatively dark, but you've got the fire going on. So because of the way that that scene was projected, you know, you have to have the fire effects on this, this creature that has all these tentacles going at the same time. So you have to keep that lighting effect consistent. That is an incredible job. That's fantastic. I grew up more or less with the Redosaurus. So I will always mention the Redosaurus, even though it may, it may not be the most technical or fantastic of Ray's creations, but I, I love it. And then, oh gosh, who else am I going to give, like, am I going to throw out? Um, no, no, who do you vote for? You, like, you sound like you're, you're conjuring them up now. You did oh, vote. You did vote. I, I did vote. Oh Lord, I can't remember who I voted for. Um I, I mean, at, at no point. Do did you I believe in listeners? I don't. <laughs> no, no. I, I oh, I love that art. That's amazing, John. That's a photo of the Redosaurus. It's an unpublished uh, image. Um, I think it was a test um, photo test that Ray did. He used to do a lot of stuff from. Um, I like the mouth closed. From, yeah, it's a slightly different. He he has a much more squarer face um, on the. Uh, on the, on the final one in the film. But you were going to get to your, I was going to try and preempt it and try and find an image. What, what was your, um, what was your, your number one of your, your choice? Oh. You can't remember. I really like the, I really like the Ymir. Um, mm. The Ymir was uh, fantastic. I think that was a very soulful creature. Um, like when he's breaking out of the egg, he, it, I don't know. But when, it, when it's coming out of its little egg and it's just this little creature and it's not imposing at all, it's quite cute and quite innocent. And I thought that was great. And then like later on in the film where they actually hurt it, you know, it's not a violent creature by nature, but it's, it's been hurt enough times that it starts to act out. Like it, there was, it was a really fantastic character arc there. Oh, that's great too. 
so that's a kind of another example sketch sketch, you know something ray did he was trying to find a form for it because originally it was going to be much more of a kind of a, a mythical creature so it was going to be something that more resembled the uh the cyclops from um from seventh forge of sinbad that we see later on so you can see him there he's fighting look he's got a half centaur he's got the kind of the greek myth thing going on so the emir ended up being much more like the kraken so more amphibious yeah. and, and mm-hmm. more like a monkey meets a, a, a kind of a, a actually you've reminded me i did i did vote the dragon from seventh voyage of sinbad that is my all-time favorite Good choice paul favorite. what were your top three? Oh, um yeah i don't know if i can get in, in an order but um I guess Children of the Hydra have, have got to be in there because that scene, it, uh, it's just amazing. The the effects, the, the music, everything just blends together so, so well. Um, but there, that's probably number one, I'll say then. Um, oh God, it's tough. The Cyclops, I've got to say, terrified me as a child. But I, I loved it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so the Cyclops definitely gets a shout on my list, and I don't. I don't want to just be picking from. I feel like I should go left field and try and pick something completely different, but I can't think of anything. I think the ones to me, yeah, would be you've got the skeletons, you've got the Cyclops, and then probably Medusa as well because Medusa's fantastic. It's such a great vision of her. So I'm, I'm going to cop out and go for popular ones. I'm afraid. I think oh, well, if, they're, they're the right choices, aren't they? Yeah, they are, and I think that if X Plus ever make a Medusa, like, I mean, my bank balance, you know, is ready. <laughs> no, I'm I'm prepared for this. My three were Calabos, Medusa, and Big Bird from um, Mysterious Island, which Joe can always remember the name of. Ah, oh, the Farrakis. Farrakis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I know is not an obvious choice, but I just find it such an exciting scene. And yeah, it, it looks fantastic, but Calabos is wonderful. Um, Calabos for me is the perfect villain in a very different way to Medusa. I think Medusa is absolutely fantastic character, but Calabos is such an easy villain to hate. Really vile character and I think the human acting and the stop motion beautifully complement each other. I've heard people kind of grumble about them being jarring, but I, I disagree. I think that the who was the name of the actor? Yeah, who was um, the, name of the gentleman? And uh, yeah, Neil McCarthy was the actor who played him. And right. uh, there he is, just above over yeah. my shoulder. Um, in the original version of the film, that you don't get to see him as a young handsome man. He was going to be a young handsome man in the pre-title sequence, right? And he's a spoilt, entitled young prince who spends his days sort of, you know, womanizing and so on. But he's out hunting, and he hunts the um, sacred herd of flying horses hunts them all down so only Pegasus remains. So in the transformation scene where Laurence Olivier turns him into this uh, deformed creature, he kind of rattles through all of that quite quickly. And Maggie Smith says, oh no, don't do that. And then he does it anyway. Um, it would have been much more effective to have had that as the pre-title sequence. Um, and that is in the Lost Movies book. There is some talk about right. they, they just, they couldn't, they, there was just, it was so complex doing one flying horse to have that sequence mm, and to have a whole, it would have been ideal, but not possible. It is an interesting scene because whilst I still get goosebumps watching the transformation of Calabos from a human into the deformity that he is, mm. 
when you're watching it, there is that feeling of, right, calm down, Zeus. Steady on. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? Yeah. You're going to kill off a bear and just feel like, what? Oh, okay. Been doing a bit of hunting. But yeah, the, the backstory kind of makes a lot more sense. Um, but the tale on Calabos is, is brilliant. And my favorite scene is actually, I think it's more human acted. Um, the wonderful scene between him and Maggie Smith when... Um, her as the statue is looking down at him and she asks, does he want justice or revenge? I think it's a wonderfully acted scene. It's phenomenal. Um, I predictably keep coming back to Clash of the Titans as my favourite film, but that's just because I absolutely adore it. I think it's incredible. It's time to take our second break, folks. We will return in a moment. Thank you. Me, 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 but also you... The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh, man. That's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous walrus. The bulbous walrus. The name your price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome back to part three of Kaiju Curry House. I'm John Walsh, filmmaker, author and trustee of the Harryhausen Foundation. And I'm here with Alex, Joe and Paul. And we're going to be discussing me from the past. Look, that's what I looked like back in the day. I looked like I was auditioning for Depeche Mode with my, with my black shirts old, and my pale face. How old were you there? 18. Okay, wow. Right. So I went to the London Film School, which is a post-grad film school. But they took me when I was 18. And I used to always wear black shirts to try and make myself look older because I was just you think I'm young in that picture to meet me up close I looked like I was like 14 I was so sort of um young looking back in those days and all the other students were sort of mid-20s so it was kind of a it was odd for me I didn't know anyone that age they they all seemed very old to me sort of 24 25 and uh so I was 18 when I made this documentary about Ray and his life that's how I first got involved with uh, Ray Harryhausen and I found his name in the London telephone directory I opened it up he was the only Harryhausen listed it said Harryhausen R um, Ilchester Place London so I, I rang him up on the on my parents phone asking permission for my parents first little did I know that I'd be here this many years later as a trustee of his foundation writing books and potentially possibly bringing one of his films back what has been the most rewarding part of you being the trustee for the foundation I think making sure that new audiences get to see and appreciate Ray's work, making sure the collection is in a, in a state that it can be exhibited. But I think really the fact that he chose me, he could have chosen anyone. Ray knew lots of people. Film people aren't the nicest people. Um, you know, if you think, um, if you think sort of the, the, the snake in jungle book, mm. a lot of them are like that, you know, a lot of them will come up to you all teeth and smiles and it's really about them you know and and ray had a lot of patience for other people he was happy to speak to other people about their work so you know over the years i used to tell him when i had tv shows on or if i was nominated for a bafta or something i'd let him know um tv companies would do what's called a transmission card it's effectively a postcard so you'd send postcards to people you like to let them know your programs on and so on so he always used to stay in touch and we'd correspond in more recent years, I sat down and recorded commentaries for him with all of his films because nobody had thought to do that. And I funded that myself. And I think that was really the road to me 
becoming a trustee. Um, you know, I don't take money for it. It's not a paid position. I mean, I don't, I don't need the money. Um, so he recognizes what I want isn't financial. What I want is to look after the collection. I'm a geek. I'm a fanboy. I'm a nerd. I'm, you know, you couldn't say that years ago because people think you're, a, you had a disability, but now it's, it's, it's fine. You know, the, the nerds have inherited the earth, but um, back in the day they hadn't. So you had to keep it a bit quiet in the cutie. And in the photo that's just behind you there, John, um, how old was Ray Harry Howison there? So that was um, that was the, the year before he died. So that was in uh, 2012. So Ray Ray was um, he was 92 there, and uh, and we're with the uh, filmmaker John Landis, who used to regularly pop in to see Ray. He's a fellow American. He's a very good friend of the of the family and the foundation. Him and his wife Deborah, who's a award-winning costume designer. Um, have been very helpful and, and friendly to us and Ray and uh, has been a great support. So he came and co-commentated on the Mighty Joe Young commentary. So the foundation now has all these commentaries and we sometimes license them out to film companies. But of course, they're an oral history as well. So when I came to write my book on lost movies, I went through all the commentaries to find what did Ray say here and what did he say there? Because sometimes they're the only places where he's documented saying, oh, originally we weren't going to have it like that. We were going to have it like this. Or we couldn't afford to have more than one. It's like, that's for the book. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're always on, on the scout for new information because I tell you this, I can't think of any filmmaker. And we think of the great filmmakers like, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock. They've had so many books out, so many large format books. Only Ray Harryhausen has managed to do that. And it's because they sell. You know, there was the movie posters book by Richard Hollis a couple of years ago. There's my book. Um, Vanessa's got a book out this year, which I'm very pleased um, to talk about. Um, Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema, which follows the ex exhibition. And it's Harryhausen in 100, as it were, images or photos, many of which haven't been seen before. But I mean, you know, how many filmmakers would you buy multiple books for on your shelf? It is interesting, isn't it? I was going to say, he, it's, I think it's because he wore so many hats. Um, he, he did the special effects. He was there in the design work, the conceptual illustrations. He had input into the actual story of the film. It was because he was just so intertwined with like these brilliant works of art. But it's one of those things. So Stan Winston is a special effects titan in a similar vein, you know, the practical effects that Harry Hausen would be. And Stan has, he had so much talent. He has so much talent. But one of the things that you get is he does a lot of the artwork, whereas he didn't necessarily uh, come into the story or the preconceptualization or like generating the films like Harryhausen did. And I think that like that's part of the charm of it. So you had this really genuine human being who was talented in so many different ways. He gives you so many different avenues to explore with his character. As it were. That's true. You know, there was been nobody in film history before or since Ray who was the instigator of their own work. So you think of the great pioneers before him, Willis O'Brien, of course, and George Melles. And, you know, and since him, you know, you mentioned Stan Winston, Dennis Buren, Phil Tippett. You know, there are lots of great FX people out there, but they've normally been brought in to facilitate somebody else's vision. Ray Harryhausen was facilitating his own vision. And as yet, nobody else on the cinematic landscape has come anywhere even close to doing that. Alex, you had a question. In the final years, how did Ray Harryhausen celebrate any of his birthdays? Um, you know, sometimes they were low-key for his um, 
um, for his 90th, we had a, a celebration at the, um, with BAFTA, but you know, BAFTA gave him an honorary uh, BAFTA when he was 90 and different people came over to see him. John, of course, came over, John Landis, and he hosted the event um, on the London South Bank. And the great and the good came over. Peter Jackson was there, um, Rick Baker, Phil Tippett, Dennis Muren, I'm sure I'm forgetting some people, Randy Cook, um, you know, lots of people he'd worked with. The guys from Ardman were, were there as well. So they all came to sort of pay homage to uh, to Ray, really. Um, and I think a lot of them would like to have had the career Ray had because these are wonderful artists all working exceptionally um, spectacularly well with their cabinets full of Oscars. I think Rick Baker has seven or is it eight Oscars? But none of them... Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of silverware. Imagine clanking them around with you, you know. Mm. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's great. It's an achievement. But you are still waiting for the phone to ring. I know in the case of some of those gents, they've got their own projects they've tried to instigate over the years, and it hasn't happened. And yet they've been in those places where you can meet those people, where you can get things greenlit. The more you facilitate somebody else's productions, the more you'll be seen as a facilitator. That is not how you get a, a green light, unfortunately. I know I've been in pitches with commissioners. You know, they, they need to see you in a certain way. You know, early on in TV, I used to do my own camera work and my own sound recording. I stopped doing that when I realized that they'll see me as a cameraman. Don't. So I stopped. I used to load my own 16 millimeter. I used to have a little Nagra sound recorder. I'd go out and shoot the thing. I'd go back to my parents' house, cut it on a steam deck, deliver it to the BBC. And once I realized if they saw how I was doing it, their perception of me would change the way they would treat me. So I had to make sure that the perception of me was what I wanted it to be. So as a, as a filmmaker, as a producer and a director and a writer, and that was, I, I made sure that I fundled myself in that direction. Of course, it does mean if something goes wrong with the cameraman or the sound recorders, you can step right in. And of course you can't be sort of, you know, bullshitted when it comes to, um, uh, you know, delays and so on, technical delays, you can kind of take, take control of the reins. It is, it is an important message though, because the way people perceive you does massively impact the way that people interact with you. I found like uh, just for comparison, depending on how I dress with clothing will affect how staff interact with me in the bank. There have been times when I've gone in straight from work in a suit and people have asked if I'm looking at certain products for mortgages. There have been times when I've gone in jeans and slacks and they've been like, do you need help? What? Um, yes, I do need help. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just vastly different experiences. However, I am incredibly interested to hear about the fact that you said you've been working with Rolex. Have I got that right? I haven't misquoted you. Yes, you have. You got that right. So the, the film that I made, um, uh, this, was, this is a kind of a larger picture of it. It was a short film, 16 millimeter film, um, where I went to Ray's house, that was in Ray's house, and I worked um, on a little documentary, 15 minutes long, asking him about his techniques, and he allowed me access to some of the creatures from some of his films. And it was narrated by Tom Baker, so it was quite the to-do for me, it was a magnum opus for me and to do that when I was 18. And uh, I hadn't looked at it for quite a few years, and I scanned it recently in HD and donated it to the foundation. And so we use it at events and we use it um, sometimes online. We show clips of it. And recently the BBC asked if they could use it for uh, exhibitions in quarantine or museums in quarantine. And uh, we'd already been speaking to Rolex for a while now. And James Cameron had chosen it because 
this is the bizarre thing. A lot of the interviews Ray did were on videotape, not on film. And a lot of the ones that were on tape, they're fine. They're fine. But you wouldn't imagine that they would work well if you cut it into a, a, a high-end advert or a commercial, because commercials tend to be shot with real sort of feature film production values. So um, Rolex asked and we said yes. And they made a, a donation to the foundation. So what I'm playing for you now is the long form commercial. There you can see Mr. James Cameron, who of course is the film director we know from Titanic, uh, The Abyss, Avatar, The Terminator, um, who got his start incidentally on Battle Beyond the Stars. If any of you have seen that fabulous sci-fi film from the early 80s, the Roger Corman, he was a, uh, um, an art directing assistant. And here he is in the commercial talking about a school teacher he had, a Mr. McKenzie, who was a great inspiration to him when he was at school and gave him the impetus to sort of, you know, take control of his creative um, urges and do something positive with it and where that would then lead because he had other um, heroes that he looked up to. And one of them, of course, or the main one was Ray Harryhausen. And so in the commercial, you can see James Cameron sort of in a room of, of lots of screams and uh, he's talking to the camera about his inspirations. And of course, it all leads to the, the reveal of, of Rolex and, and the brand new watch that he's, um, he's endorsing. And in a moment, you'll see, there we go. There's Ray Harryhausen as a young man. And it cuts to some sequences there. Am I, am I blocking it too much? Of Not splendid. There we go. You can see just a bit of my show. There's my film. Hooray. So there's Ray Yay! Harryhausen animating the Kraken, chatting to me. And while James Cameron looks on admiringly, because James Cameron, of course, was a great fan of Ray Harryhausen. Cameron was a, an instigator himself of his own visual excellence and was an innovator with, with all of his films. You know, from, from Avatar back, you know, to the early ones, he, he made so much more of what he did. It was Aliens, Terminator. He was always pushing the envelope. We think Terminator 2, of course, the liquid um yeah robots yeah. that was wow that was like that had never been seen before that was that was that was something that was really amazing but for me i'm an 18 year old kid to think james cameron chose my film school documentary <laughs> to be part of a commercial with rolex it's like oh we didn't get a watch in case people are asking we didn't get a rolex <laughs> but, um made a substantial donation to the foundation for which we're very grateful and our relationship with them continues I just That's didn't awesome. expect that my new bucket list entry would be for Rolex to retweet Kaiju Curry House, but there you go. <laughs> hashtag Kaiju Curry House, hashtag perpetual, I believe, was the slogan to go with that Rolex. I believe so. You know, uh, James Cameron is all about excellence in what he does. Mm. And uh, Rolex are the same. You know, they're like the, effectively like the Rolls Royce of watches. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really follow these things. I don't follow cars and jewellery and so on. But uh, I, I do know, and for people who know even casual observers know that Rolex is like up there as, as one of the most prestige brands. That's still so awesome. I, I, I bet you were just dead chuffed to see your video up there when you were watching it the first time that, that, that was, I, I, I would be like really giddy if that was me. That's really cool. I'm, I'm chuffed for you. That's so neat. No, thanks. It's just, you know, it's, it's, just, it is interesting. You know, Ray had so much time and patience for other people. And now as I get older, I have the time and the patience to work with the foundation. And these things just seem to naturally rise to the surface. So whether it's the books, the screenings, 
the exhibitions, this now collaboration with, with Jim Cameron and, and Rolex, um, and possibly developing now one of Ray's, Ray's films as a, as a feature film. So, you know, there, there are lots of exciting developments. And although Ray sadly has passed, his work has never been more alive. You know, the, here's an interesting stat. You know, um, it's the only stats I'm going to come up with tonight. There are more hours of stop motion animation happening right now than at any time when Ray was working his career. Across cinema, television, commercials, advertising, it's everywhere. You know, um, there's, there's feature films being made in stop motion now, even by Netflix. So it's, it's not considered to be sort of the... Uh, the poor relation of puppetry or shadow puppetry or something just to, to irk out a, a grant from a, from an arts body. It gets bums on seats. People like that movement. It's something that they feel is, is more naturalistic in some ways. It maintains more of the performance. And actually when I spoke recently to the Sunday times about why Ray's work has more legs to it than sometimes CG work. If you look at CG from say 20 years ago, it can look a bit clunky but Jason the Argonauts from 60 years ago doesn't. It's because Ray's performance through his fingers straight into those creatures, into those maquettes, um, is uninterrupted. Whereas if that was farmed out to a thousand animators who are brilliant at what they do, but some are doing shading, some are doing hair, some are doing the cape, some are doing the water that comes off the cape. By the time you've created that homogenous form of acting, of course it's going to feel soulless. Because there are just so many different people working on it, whereas you've got one visionary, in the case of Ray Harryhausen, um, resolute on working on his own vision. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you're thinking that you are performing and you're performing obviously very slow, one twenty-fourth of a second, because that's how many times a creature moves in, in one second. Um, the creature maybe scratches his head and has to think about what's going on, whereas that performance will be rounded off and out if there's like dozens and dozens of animators or hundreds of animators around the world, you know, that's not to say that CG is bad and stop motion is good. It's just, it, it sometimes explains why it can feel and look soulless because if there is no physical weight to it, then if it's a sea of people running and you kind of think that kind of looks CG or I recently saw the film, a Gemini man with um, Will Smith, uh, Will Smith and they spent a ton of money trying to make that work. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, that, that's so many, uh, I mean, that doesn't work on so many angles and for so many reasons. And yet it should, because the technology is there that it, it can work. Um, but I think people kind of sniff it out and they're like, mm. and yet people know it's stop motion in Ray's films and yet they are still transported. That's one of the reasons why my daughter wasn't scared in Clash of the Titans. Like, she knows that it, it's not real, but the creature has a character. That character was given to it by a person, a singular person, like you're saying. But it, it is a tangible like thing that's being photographed. And I, I think that that speaks volumes, but it, ha it, it has that magical quality. We talked about it the last time you were on the show. It's, it's not 100% by any means, but because it's not, and because you can get an idea of how it's happening, it still has that magic where you appreciate how it happened. But it, it ha like I said, again, it has a character 
because so much thought had to go into that movement. So much careful precision had to go into it. Of course, it will come out with a character. Of course, it will be doing the things that you want it to do. Whereas with CGI, I, Paul, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to slightly slate tremors here. Um, Why? Three, three. <laughs> sorry. But again, another friend of mine hadn't seen Tremors, so I made them watch Tremors 2, which has CGI. It moved away from puppetry to some CGI. And it was one of these things that I noticed where one of the creatures lifts its head and then it looks down and its computer-generated neck completely disappears. I don't know if you guys have encountered this, but when you have a creature that's a model um, where it, like the computer program hadn't necessarily reached the stage where it is now where like the flesh would fold or whatever, but it just seemed to kind of implode upon itself where like the neck completely disappeared when it looked when it looked down, like it, it just like it melded down, but like edges of it appeared in the body. It's just that kind of thing where you wouldn't get with a puppet that's actually there. Like you will always see the light will be hitting it the right way. It will move, it will fold, it will flow. But yeah, it, it really is a magical form of art. My, my daughter, we watched uh, Missing Link not too long ago. And, and I'm gonna, I always press the name, but Lakea, Studio Lakea, right? Leica films. Leica, that's Leica. sorry. Yeah. But I, I love their stuff, but we really enjoyed Missing Link. And again, it's a fantastic form of animation to get that done. And I, I think more films, more children's films need to move away from, say, the CGI like, frozen or toy story and they can go back to that and it would be really lovely and i think that it is lovely that you have folks like like they're at that studio and they're like really endorsing that form of art and storytelling but it is great and i think a huge part of like whoever's animating the creature comes through in that creature's performance we know think- as a side note if we're talking sandworms uh, ray was asked to oh. do the sandworms <laughs> on june for david lynch in 1984 and he wasn't able to do it. There's, there's a little short piece in my book about it. Um, but had Ray done the animated sandworms, that would have been quite something. I was Absolutely. waiting for you to say Beetlejuice there briefly, but then oh. I'm you didn't. <laughs> 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 but uh, uh, we got a new Dune movie coming up too. That's another interesting. We have indeed. And I have just received the Dune trilogy for my birthday. So I need to kind of dig into that. Uh, it is time for us to wrap up. John, I wanted to ask about your film that's coming up, Monarch. Uh, just as a history teacher, um, I'm interested in kind of the topic that you've picked because my favourite fact that I learned was how much Henry VIII squandered on his Christmas uh, party. Can you share that with us? Yes. So um, here comes the trailer for Monarch. So Monarch was a film I shot a little while ago and it's it's about Henry VIII. It's, so he's a real character, Henry VIII, but the situation here is entirely fiction. So it takes place in one night in his life, not long before he dies, where he's visited by a ghostly amalgamation of his former wives. But Henry was quite the playboy. He kind of uh, devalued the currency. He literally melted down the, the coins to get what he could out of it. And he, he lived quite a grand life. He lived like a lottery winner at everyone else's expense. And in my film here, Monarch, he's, um, he's, he's under, the, um, under the cosh from his own staff and this empty manor house where he goes to. The film's been rescanned in HD. It's going to be premiering soon on... I do apologise, my internal phone's going there. Boop, boop, boop. It's got background noise, I like it. 
Um, the film's coming up on Amazon Prime. So um, that, along with my film Tory Boy the Movie, will be on Amazon Prime very soon. And uh, it was shot very cheaply, but it was shot on 35mm, which meant that we could do a HD scan of it. And the great Irish actor T.P. McKenna here playing Henry VIII for me. And Gene Marshall will have recognised there, who was from 9 to 5, Return to Oz and Willow, playing an amalgamation of all of his former wives. And uh, so that was all good stuff. So, yes, no monsters in sight, I'm afraid, unless you consider monarchy itself to be a monster. Then um, there's my film Monarch. Oh, Monarch. Oh, Monarch, as Americans used to say. I love your film Monarch. Um, so apologies oh come on now (laughs) (laughs) not all Americans said that some Americans said that to me Um, but uh, but thank you for noticing thank you for noticing my my work I'm very humbled no it it, it looks splendid Um, what age certificate will that be? Um, it's 15 there's some uh, unfortunately there's some scenes of intense violence and uh, intense bloody violence as the BBFC called it intense bloody violence you know when I first read it I was like who wrote this is it Ray Winston your film's got intense bloody violence and uh, notice how it says written down intense bloody violence it's like calm down well the Tudor and Stuart reign were pretty bloodthirsty so it's kind of fitting is well, it less... off with your head isn't it sorry yeah exactly is it less sexy than the BBC's Tudors because I don't know if you saw that, that that was very kind of sexed up. Like Henry VIII was an absolute playboy, which is true to many understandings of him. However, it was very much going down the route of Henry VIII, he's a sex icon and there's nothing else to him. No, this is the, the only women in my film, I, I'm, I say with a grin, I don't know why I'm doing this, are both dead. So there's the ghost of all of his ex-wives played by Jean Marsh. And there's a ghost of a servant girl who turns up who's um, with child. Mm. So it's somebody who he took um, without her consent. Um, but no, it's all blokes, but the women are dead. I don't know if I'll be in trouble for that. There'll be a hashtag coming after me at some point. There but, will. Um, yeah. Who knows? Maybe not. Right. If nothing else, Mr. Joe. If nothing else, I'm going to say check out the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation's top 10 list of monsters. Um, it's a fantastic uh lineup of creatures uh as you said john uh continue watching because we will get an 11 to 20 at some point right yes that's right that's great and i'm also going to ask you um just so that all of our listeners can get the dates when is that exhibition in edinburgh going to be coming up again you said october yes 24th of october we expect to um to open the exhibition and we're going to be running for a full year as well so plenty of time to come see us up in edinburgh Will there be schedules for the screen, potential screenings of films? Yes, I believe so. So a bit nearer the time, either on the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation Facebook page or Twitter account, we'll be posting details. So if there's a, if we're doing something with screenings and meets and greets and that sort of thing, we'll, uh, we'll certainly let you know. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Wonderful. If nothing else, please get a copy of Harryhausen, The Lost Movies by John Walsh, our guest here tonight. You can get that on Amazon. And if you get a copy, have a read of it. Please leave a review. It is so important to content creators that they get reviews. So please be supportive and share this episode, tagging in the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation and ourselves. Share it and, you know, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Paul, if nothing else, well, thanks very much. You both stole my ideas because I was going to say originally the top 10 on Facebook, which Joe went into, and then the Lost Movies book. Um, actually, speaking of the Lost Movies book, I just want to say, because I was going to re- recommend that, my favourite uh, little 
nugget of information in there was to do with the um, children of the of the Hydra and how Ray wanted to film it at night. But if he did, it would have been an X-rated movie because of that, because it was too terrifying. Yes, that's right. So that originally romantic. they submit scripts to the censor in advance so they can get some idea of what certificate the film will, will get because the studio is expecting something that has a general certification. That means to all family members. And when the censor saw it, they said, oh, no, you know, you can't have this happening at the uh, bewitched hour. It ha- has to happen in daylight. But the, quite a few steps in that sequence were changed. The Hydra originally chases Jason. The Hydra is at the entrance to hell, to Hades. Mm. It's protecting Hades. So when he steals the fleece, the seven-headed Hydra chases Jason back into Hades. And it's in Hades, in hell, he disturbs the graves of dead soldiers. And it's there he has his fight with them, in hell, with, with the soldiers from their graves. So they, they had to try and slightly neutralise the grave factor. So as you notice, they come out of the ground straight up rather than clambering out of their graves. We have the artwork in the book for how the sequence should have been. And perhaps one day could be. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's um, why you should read the book because it's got fantastic little bits like that. So my recommendation as, as those have been stolen will be just go watch a Harryhausen film and in, enjoy the magic because I've got, I've got nothing else now. Well, John, please give your own recommendation now. Right, gosh, well, do watch any Ray Harryhausen you can. And if you want to buy my new Flash Gordon book, it's on pre-order now on Amazon. So Flash Gordon, the official story of the film, will be out from October and I'll be available to, uh, to sign that anywhere you can find me signing it. Brilliant. In Forbidden Planners, Street Corners, or maybe at any one of our houses. There you go. Happily come to your house and sign it for you, Alex. Marvellous. And I think that we should get together um, with my cousin Neil Cole to do an episode possibly focusing on your shared interest about Doctor Who on Tom oh, Baker. I love that. I yeah. love that. And there's a Harryhausen crossover with Doctor Who, you know, Tom Marvellous. Baker, of course, and uh, Patrick Troughton as well. Not once, it's not twice, lab. but three times involved with Harryhausen. So okay. um, it's kind of a quiz question that you'd only know the answer <laughs> to that if you read Harryhausen and the Lost mm. Movies. But Pat Troughton was in uh, three Harryhausen productions. Well, there you go. Thank you so much for listening, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Joe, can you sign us off, please? Folks, thank you so much for listening to Kaiju Curry House. This is all of us signing off and telling you to keep it kaiju. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change, like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mmm, yeah. I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. 
It's a new year, which means new reasons to stop by QT, like drinks to wash out the taste of last year. I need more. And fresh snackles, worth breaking a resolution. Pizza has tomatoes, so technically, it's a salad. Want to binge a new show? We've got plenty to snack along with it, like our new cheesy mac and cheese. Wow, it's like my wife's, but even cheddar. Up top. This is the time for new beginnings, and it starts at Quick Trip. QT. More than a gas station.